I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Happy holidays, everyone. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. So we are not going to be taking a traditional break from Recovery Bites throughout the holidays. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be randomly releasing some extra episodes, episodes that have never been heard before between now and the end of the year. Happy holidays, everyone. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. My heart is so full right now. I don't know how I'm going to get through this interview. I want to introduce all of you to Andy Williams. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. So glad to be here. Uh, Really appreciate it. Andy, I have had the, I'm going to say, honor and luxury of knowing you for years, working side by side with you. Tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I have been in the eating disorder treatment industry for uh, a decade at this point. I met Karen very early on in my time, so I consider her a friend uh, and a mentor. Uh, learned a lot from you, Karen. And uh, I've been uh, in uh, clinics uh, or in actual programs as a primary therapist, program director, clinical director. I now have trended more towards the business operation side of things. I still do uh, a lot of work with our programs and with clients, um, but I do trend more towards the business operation side of things. So uh, excited to talk with you and uh, uh, have some fun discussing history. So much to talk about. And so, Andy, I just want to jump right in. I think what I'd like to start with is, and I say this all the time, people have heard me say, you do not have to have had an eating disorder to be an incredible eating disorder therapist. For all of you who remember me always bringing up Anna Kowalski, Anna is part of the tribe with Andy and I. So, you know, so Andy, what is it like working in the industry? Because you're really, you're really good. You you know how to understand what's going on for people. What's it like being an eating disorder specialist yet not having had experienced one? I feel very comfortable now being a younger clinician and jumping into uh, a setting where it's highly specialized. And we talk a lot about eating disorders but there's a whole host of other things that go along with uh, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, you know, you name it, and we've probably seen it. And so now looking back, I feel very comfortable 
and I don't know any other way of operating from a therapeutic stance. Uh, but certainly when I was younger and learning to do groups and, and learning to do individual sessions, I had a lot to learn and I probably put my foot in my mouth uh, more than my fair share. And uh, so the, the thing that I really go back to when I think about the type of therapist that I am is that I remember sitting in groups with people with years of experience, you know, yourself included, Anna, Carolyn, Don Theodore. And I remember thinking uh, and taking mental notes and trying to do things the way that you do things or the way that Carolyn would do things. And then kind of bumping up against a wall and realizing, I'm not these people, so I can't be them. So I have to find my own style, my own rhythm, my own way of connecting with and communicating with our clients. And that takes time, it takes effort, it takes repetition. Um, but I think I finally uh, you know, found that rhythm and found that style for myself. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, with stories and being able to relate to not just the individual or individuals in the room and their stories, but stories at large and bringing uh, different examples into the room. So I definitely sometimes think I'm a little bit of an oddball in that A, I don't have my own personal experience with an eating disorder or exercise type of stuff, but also I am a dude and I have a beard and it's now graying and I represent something to a lot of our clients that can be a challenge, uh, but it can also be a beautiful thing for us to work through together. And so I don't know if I've rambled on to answer your question in any way, but uh, my experience has been rich uh, it's been rewarding, and ultimately, I, I love the, the opportunities to get in rooms with clients and families and still chop it up. Yeah. You know, first of all, we talk about the fact that as a clinician, it is humanly impossible for any one clinician to have experienced everything when a client walks into your room, right? I mean, otherwise, I, I don't know how I would be able to be a clinician if I had experienced all these, you know, things that my clients had constantly. Do you, you see what I'm saying? So that's one of the reasons why someone doesn't have to have had an eating disorder. The thing that is so amazing about you, and when you say bringing in stories, looking at the larger pic picture, you're looking at it from a perspective, and forgive me for putting words in your mouth, but of that as a, of a human. As a human being, we have all have experienced two different degrees, depression, anxiety, fear, love, happiness, anger. And so as a human being, Andy, you can, you can resonate with clients. And I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. And that's ultimately what I think I'm always going for, be it with a client or if I'm training a new therapist, is that we're humans first, were therapist and client second, you know, so like there's, uh, there's always that human element. And when, when you're in a group setting, which 
which I love. And I actually prefer running groups over individual therapy. At this point, I just think that there's so much you can pull with and, and play with and relate with, uh, with the other clients that sometimes folks can get stuck on, I have anorexia or I have bulimia or these are my behaviors. But at the end of the day, emotions drive those behaviors, at least in my line of thinking. And uh, there's a whole lot of other things that go into it, but it's the emotions that everybody in the room can relate to, eating disorder or not, anxiety or not, uh, therapist or client alike. We can all relate on, yeah, I've woken up and thought, hmm, I don't feel so great about myself. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Like everybody has had that experience. So let's start there. And I think that's, that's why uh, I've stuck around in this industry for so long is that we can ultimately get to that place where we're just humans looking at each other, trying to pursue the best versions of ourselves, be a client or a therapist. Well, you also brought something up earlier, and I'm going to be a little provocative in the way I ask it, but what is it like being a white male, older, not that you're old, Andy, but older, <laughs> you know, and and uh, please hear me when I say I, I do not live in stereotypes, so I don't want to make it sound like I am. And there are situations where that can be a really... Uh, uncomfortable is just the word I'm going to use, uncomfortable experience for you as the therapist. What has your experience been like for that? I don't think I knew, I don't think I was insightful enough as a 30-year-old, you know, 29-year-old clinician to understand, oh, there could be a real male-female dynamic, you know, in my therapeutic relationships, you know, especially in the, the context of eating disorders. As I've grown, my insight has grown. I've had more experience to know, yes, this is present in the room. And certainly as I've grown in my responsibility level in terms of uh, helping to organize teams and run teams and being in charge of programs and now in charge of, uh, you know, regions of programs that the way that I look as a white male in a, you know, using air quotes over here, kind of a, a position of power um, for this, you know, context that it's important that I have to recognize that and lead uh, with a recognition of that. I don't know that I carry myself too much differently, even with that insight. I've, I've always led with uh, um, a perspective of kind of like we just talked about, I'm a human, you're a human, we might look a little different, we might actually have different roles. I'm a therapist, you might be a client, but I, I don't view myself as too much different than you. Um, so, so that's one thing. And so I think I'm disarming in that way. I will typically lead, especially when I go to a different region and I'm jumping into a group to help out or, or, or train or whatever. I often lead with a little bit of humor about myself 
And that kind of sets the tone to let people know that uh, maybe I am also a human alongside of them uh, and allow for them to kind of chuckle at my expense. That I found ha has been a powerful tool. Um, one experience, if you don't mind me sharing a story, that, that kind of has caused me to, uh, to take a step back and to examine and to learn, okay, the way that I interact with people, do I need to shift things? Uh, you know, I was at a, a large residential uh, facility uh, in, in Oregon. It was at Montanito. I think you were still at Montanito uh, at, at that time. But so if you, you've probably been to Rain Rock, uh, but there's a right by the parking lot, you can walk in through the group room and make your way through one of the living room areas into the second living room area into the staff office. And that's how I would go in so that I could greet the clients and the staff, you know, as a part of uh, just like a morning routine, a ritual for myself. Um, and because I am a dude and our, our clients predominantly who attend treatment, uh, you know, are uh, female um, and I would uh, go through and say, hello, how's it going, gang? You know, I, I'd fist bump people and, you know, as I'm walking on. So that was my attempt at uh, greeting, at relating to people about saying good morning. I got an email uh, months after a couple of clients had discharged. And they said that that interaction with them made them feel uh, in, that they had to interact with me. And uh, so I had never thought of it from that perspective. And it, it, it caused me to take a step back and to understand, uh, okay, even though I don't view myself in such a way, maybe our clients uh, feel as though they have to interact with me, even though they might not want to. Um, and does that, do I need to change my behavior? Do I need to stop offering, uh, you know, these uh, uh, relational interactions? Ultimately, I have said, no, I still need to be me. Um, I still need to be able to greet people. I still need to be able to offer some sort of a connection um, and also offer, you know, hey, feel free to, to not stop and talk to me, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know if that lands uh, in terms of how I uh, attempt to interact and to uh, um, offer relational connections, um, but it certainly shifted over my decade-ish plus uh, of being in programs such as this. Well, it goes back to the word human. That just seems to be the the theme of the conversation today, which is as a therapist, you are also human. And there are times when we're unaware of how our behaviors are impacting others. And what I want to say is that is fantastic that those clients reached out and said, hey, this is how it made me feel. First of all, I want to say good for them. I, I you know, um, and Thank God, Andy, you're the kind of person to say, let me take a step back and reflect on it because not everybody does just because you're a therapist doesn't mean that you're this, you know, altruistic person that whenever you get a suggestion, you're like, okay, let me implement that to myself. You know, 
you you really took that in and said, wow, what does it mean? What do I need to do to make myself still be authentic and help be at the best interest of the clients? The, the thing about this, I, I think, is that I really wish it could have happened in person. The, the dynamic of being able to work through things in person, I think that's one of the, the things that I bring to the table. Because ultimately, if we zoom out, offering a fist bump to someone is fairly innocuous and it's uh, an attempt at uh, let's connect, you know, even uh, ever so briefly. The, the feelings that uh, a client has uh, oftentimes about me when I'm in a group, if I ask a question, I tend to be very direct. That's a part of my style. It's a part of my personality. Um, and I, part of what I've uh, kind of honed over the, the past decade is that there's, a, as you grow as a clinician, you can start to uh, get to the heart of things a little bit quicker. Um, and so sometimes the, the way in which I ask things is uh, it's different than maybe other therapeutic styles. And a client will uh, hear it and be maybe, oh, wow, that's uh, uh, that makes me feel anxious or it makes me feel unsafe. And ultimately, the, the offering of a fist bump, the asking of a well-intentioned and well-thought-through uh, but very direct question, it's not about me. It's about the history with that client. And for us to be able to say, let's use this as an opportunity. Let's use this as a stepping stone to say, I bring up something for you. I'm very comfortable in that space. Let's talk about it. Let's use this as an opportunity to recognize I, the client, feel unsafe in this moment when I survey it. I'm in a room full of other people that I know, love, and trust, staff, and other clients. Uh, so I'm actually quite safe. I might feel something, but in this moment, physically, emotionally, mentally, I, I'm here. Let's go for it. And I think that's what I try to bring is an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to say, even though we might feel something in the moment. Part of what we're helping people learn is to survey the landscape and understand, is the reality what I feel? Or is the feeling actually leading me back to patterns, behaviors, et cetera, that I ultimately trying to get away from? Exactly. The interesting thing is what I was going to say, and whether it's using the example, well, I will use the example that you we just said about the, the client emailing you after. I I know for me, because I'm so passionate about the work and you are too, like I want people to feel in the moment and talk about it in the moment. I also praise every time someone uses their voice. And so that in it of itself, given someone's trauma history, may have been a big step. They weren't able to do it in person, but they were able to do it a few months later you know, through email, which that may have been the first time they've ever even come that far. Because Andy, as therapists, we all get these emails like a few months later for, you know, saying, I wish you hadn't done that. I mean, again, we are human. And if we're sitting in front of somebody who isn't letting us know in the moment, we're not going to change our behavior. 
but wow, the, the client who can still have the courage to say, I've never used my voice before, but I'm going to hit send because I just felt really that didn't feel good to me. There's so many different levels of where people are coming from in their process. I agree. Um, and I think we have to look at it that way, because as we know, the road to recovering from an eating disorder can be very long. And we, we work with clients uh, in snippets at times. If you work in a treatment program, uh, you can work with clients a little bit on a longer term basis, you know, as a private practitioner, but we get to see clients do work and then return to their life. And then sometimes they come back and that's not a failure in any way. It just means we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to try some things differently. One of the things that I'm really passionate about, and I will say it in most groups and individual sessions, is that I want for clients to leave with a better understanding of their own power. I think oftentimes our clients come in and they might doubt that they have any power or choice or say so or agency or, you know, pick the, pick the word. But ultimately, I want for our, our clients to leave with an understanding that I have powerful skills and abilities. I've sometimes used those in my eating disorder. If I can use those talent, strengths, abilities, you know, whatever, towards recovery, towards relationships, towards a career, you know, there's a lot there. And if people can start to believe that they offer something, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back though, to a really important part of trauma work, which is exactly what you said. People who have trauma in their life, whether it's big trauma or little trauma, big T or little T, they, they are in an, a current present situation where they feel unsafe because they're coming from their past. And it is powerful to help a client understand you are responding in a completely new situation from an old paradigm. And please, everyone hear me. I will never invalidate anyone's trauma. I'm not in any way, shape or form. But that is part of the work, recognizing you are here today, you are safe. This is not the same experience. I don't know if you have any thoughts about doing the trauma work or anything that I just said. I, I agree. And that's exactly what I would want for clients and families to, to be able to understand and to, to recognize is that our previous experiences, obviously, they inform our reactions. Um, the, the part that I really want to, to get to and to help clients understand is when we start to calm ourselves, when we start to get curious about, I feel this in these scenarios and certain situations, um, how can I calm myself, how can I look at the scenario or the situation and begin to understand in a lot of interactions, I get to choose differently. 
there's going to be, you know, like this is uh, how we have evolved as a species. You know, we have something happen to us uh, uh, that is uh, uh, big, big T, little t, as you said, it's logged in our brains. And then the next time something that happens that brings up that same emotional response, our brain kind of goes back to that one spot, even if the situation right in front of us is quite different. And so I think that we have opportunities with our clients to be able to try to slow some things down, uh, take a look at our surroundings, be it, you know, uh, actual physical surroundings or emotionally and consider different options for, for ways to move forward. Because, you know, we've all sat in a room or sat in rooms with, with clients where some, uh, there's a hard conversation, it's uncomfortable, it's anxiety provoking, and the relational pattern is to bolt. When we give clients opportunities to come into contact with that anxiety, with that discomfort, and then sit across from Karen Lewis and say, this is actually a person that I love and trust, I'm gonna stick it out. And then that's where the power comes like, oh, I did this in this one situation and circumstance. I'm just building skills. I'm just building uh, uh, muscle as it were uh, to, to be able to do it in a different setting. It, and, and that's it. It's, it's building on each experience, each skill, each time you try to do something differently than the old pattern. That's exactly, that's a big part of the work. Andy, I know this is an odd question, but what have you noticed in the whole landscape of our profession? I mean, you have a very unique perspective. You're right. You've been a primary therapist, a program director, a clinical director, and now you're in more of a leadership position. So what has it been like moving through all of these these different areas, still working with clients with eating disorders and, and helping them and their families and their supports and loved ones? I, it's interesting. I've been kind of uh, in my own journal and in my own thought process thinking about this. You know, you kind of get reflective. I always tend to get reflective, you know, in years where, you know, a birthday ends in a zero or a five, you know, I don't know why that is, but, I, but I've been uh, reflective as of late. And I, uh, the, the thing that I've noticed over the, the past decade, I think, is that there's a lot of people that are still very passionate about the work. The, Private equity, you know, obviously has been infused into this space. And, and in one sense, that has really allowed for more services to be offered to more people. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, the, the challenge, I think, as we're, we're all faced with it, who are operating in uh, programs and in settings such as mine, is maintaining quality of care. And uh, that means taking therapists that are coming out of grad school and helping to train and give them experiences and opportunities to learn about eating disorders um, and to uh, um, continue to offer the same uh, level of, of care that you or I you know, are accustomed to and would want to offer. 
Um, so certainly a lot has shifted in some ways and in other ways, it's all the same, <laughs> you know, our clients are still, um, these, uh, beautiful, wild, interesting, sophisticated, uh, uh, challenging, like they're still the, they come in and the challenges are, are very much the, the same that I remember when I started doing this 10 years ago. Um, yet every person is highly unique and their story is unique and why they do what they do is unique. And so uh, you can, I guess, I've wanted to use the experience that I've gained while also holding the, the place in, in my heart and in my mind that uh, our, our clients are all so different um, that they're always challenging me. Uh, and, it, and I think that's a part of the, the fun as a professional is how do I use previous experience and knowledge to help in this newer situation? I think as as clinicians, or at least I'll speak for myself, I'm always learning. I'm always learning new ways to work with people, new things about myself. And that's what I feel is really exciting about what we do. Now, I know this is like probably the most backwards interview ever, but Andy, what got you into the field if you've never had an eating disorder? It is not the most common, you know, profession for men, which actually I want to take that back. I, I'm sorry, everyone. I feel like I'm making a lot of stereotypes today. Um, but what what got you into the field? I don't, I don't think you're uh, inaccurate in, in that statement, truthfully, um, uh, from, from my experience. That's the funny thing is uh, not that only men care about basketball or whatever, but anytime I get a chance to interact with a new colleague, one of my first questions is, hey, do you care about sports at all? Because oftentimes, Karen, I don't have a ton of people in my professional life to chop it up about the recent NBA trade deadline, you know? So uh, there, there are, you know, the, those things that do remain somewhat uh, true. But I, uh, I had uh, some friends in high school and in college uh, and then, you know, post-college that struggled with eating disorders. And most of the time, I was never involved in any kind of dialogue uh, around it. But it was for, for whatever reason, as an adolescent, you know, high school and uh, college, my heart just went out to these folks. And I never really asked them about it. I never really had any, I was never involved in any treatment that they may or may not have received. But I always just had it in the back of my head. And when I made the decision to go back to grad school and become a therapist, uh, I had originally thought, because uh, I had previously been uh, doing some whitewater wilderness, uh, like guiding in the, the backcountry in Northern California, just south of Oregon, I thought I was going to become like a wilderness therapist. That was my original uh, thought process. And then got to uh, got to Elliot's where I went to to grad school, and I met who has become my my beautiful wife and partner and in, in crime and all things uh, Katie. And so my my mind started to shift from okay, wilderness therapy probably isn't going to work because she's never camped a day in her life. Um, 
and you can chuckle if you know Katie. Um, <laughs> so I had to start shifting, you know, my thought process. And I was sitting in a class. It was uh, about substance use, the, the class that I was sitting in. And I had this thought of, huh, I, I wonder if there's a place for me in treating eating disorders. Like that seems more interesting to me than community mental health, uh, substance, you know, like, so I just, my heart had kind of, uh, for whatever reason, resonated with these folks in my life. And then, you know, probably a decade later, you know, uh, I was in that class and I had that thought. So just started asking around, uh, hey, how could I get into this field? How could I receive some training? Uh, and then ultimately, I wound up getting connected with Carolyn, uh, who then, you know, uh, we built a bit of a relationship. She introduced me to Don Theodore and who knows why, but they offered me a job and, uh, you know, I, I, I stuck around um, and uh, learned a, a ton from them. And I always knew that I love, and, and the reason why I think that this has been so fun for me for the past decade is that I get to do a ton of therapy and I get to do some of the really fun work, but I also have a, a an operations mind. And I always thought that way. I didn't know it. Um, but I, you know, was probably the squeaky wheel and asking questions to Don and Bruce and Carolyn and giving unsolicited suggestions. And eventually, you know, I think they saw something in me and they gave me some projects. They gave me some opportunities uh, to kind of uh, uh, do those things. So, uh, you know, it, it's been a uh, I never would have thought, uh, you know, 20 years ago that I would be a therapist doing eating disorder or treatment. Um, but I, it's weird. I can't, uh, yeah, it's hard to, to think of something different at this point. Yeah. You know, the reason why I love that narrative is because I sit with clients and they say, you know, I'm already too old to change my life or I, I've, I've always been on this one path and this is where I'm supposed to be. And what I often say is, is you have no idea if you recover from your eating disorder and are and allow yourself to be present. So many things you are going to start internalizing so many things. You're going to meet people that have impacts on you that share your values. Your life can change in a day. And I'm not saying that to be scary. I'm saying that to be, it's exciting. And so this, I love that you use that because we never know. And I don't ever want anyone to feel like they're stuck. It's too late. They've made a decision and they have to follow through. Anything can happen. I agree. And I think that that's one of the powerful things that we offer as people make the decisions and, and make the different choices to walk down that road to recovery is that oftentimes our clients are going to become different people as they move further and further away from their eating disorder. There's so much more uh, emotional availability. There's so much more time for other passions and pursuits. And I, I just, I think that as a, as a professional, I am continuing to do that as well in terms of evolving in my 
skill set and the evolving in terms of what it is that you know I'm I'm pursuing. Uh, one of the things that I have uh, done over the, the past few years uh, for for my own self care or, or whatever you know we want to say is I I've participated in men's coaching groups where uh, it's all been virtually over the past few years, but it's just it's a bunch of men you know on a screen and we're kind of helping each other uh, work through life's ups and downs. And a lot of us, you know, kind of come from communities and cultures where men are really taught to have one emotion, which is anger. Uh, and we're learning to together, you know, uh, be vulnerable, uh, shed a tear when it comes, um, ask for help, you know, rather than being the solitary uh, figure, you, you know, uh, who, who needs no help, you know, the Marlboro man. Um, and the statement that, that I've come to for my own um, self and, and my own growth is that uh, there are many, many different parts of me. Uh, there's many different passions and ideas that I have. Uh, and, and my statement is that, because I, I think I've been siloed at times where I'm only a therapist. I'm only for pursuing this and I've neglected uh, relationships or, you know, instead of putting down the book, you know, while studying for an exam, I could have taken a, a time out and gone to play basketball and I missed out on some of those things. Uh, so my statement for myself is that I want it all. I can be dedicated to uh, my family. I can be dedicated to my career. I can uh, take off and go into the wilderness and go camping. Uh, uh, you know, um, I, I can have all of those things. And that's my statement that I keep telling myself. And I want to, I think that that's what we offer our clients um, and their families as they meet with us and they attend treatment programs is that you, you can do it all. Clients, and, and again, I will speak from my own experience, I was very one-dimensional in my eating disorder. I didn't know there could be many different parts of me, and some parts contradict the other ones, but there's still parts of me. That's, that's who I am. I have a, a question, and I don't know if, if, if this is just me getting all metaphorical, but how do you ever take like the metaphor that like you used to guide people on the water, you would show them, you would navigate them, show them how to go, help them, show them their surroundings. Don't forget to look up there. Don't forget to see this. Look in the water. Is there anything about that that you use in your clinical work? Or am I just being so off my, you know, me being creative? I'm going to use the word creative, everyone. <laughs> I love it. Yes, uh, I think that both from a metaphorical stance, but also from a confidence stance. When when you're alone in the wilderness with a group of people who, for the most part, they don't jump into a river and get on this weird uh, rubber polyurethane thing and paddle themselves through, you know, choppy waters. You're in charge of a lot. Um, and so that confidence uh, of being able to navigate someone in a literal wilderness translates from uh, an emotional or a therapeutic stance that we're off, uh, we're oftentimes helping guide people through an emotional or a, a relational 
wilderness, a very turbulent experience. The one of the the analogies that that I use a lot in terms of these various parts of ourselves is that rivers are not these solitary uh, things. They have many different tributaries that all kind of wind their way through rough country to create uh, the Klamath River. That was the river that I uh, guided on. The you know the Mississippi River. Like we can think of the the nearest large river to you, the listener. And there's many different tributaries. Uh, and I think a lot of the um, when oftentimes. When, when times are hard, um, we can look at that and we can say, this sucks. <laughs> um, oftentimes when we look back, it's those hard times that actually uh, propel us and transform us into who we are and oftentimes the person that we want to become. And when two rivers meet, you know, or when two streams meet, you know, that confluence is oftentimes very turbulent and choppy. Um, but from a, a white water river perspective, that's the fun stuff. That's actually what you pay the big bucks for. Um, and so I think that if we can also shift some of our thinking in terms of the, the challenges or the difficulties, um, we can look at those and we can say, hmm, I, I'm probably growing and I don't even know it. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. I'm probably growing and don't even know it. Andy, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I adore you. I miss you. I love seeing you. I miss your wife. This has just been a wonderful experience for me. I don't know how it was for everybody else. Before we end, is there anything else you wanted to say that I didn't ask about or anything at all? No, uh, I, I love uh, our conversations, Karen, and uh, I love actually, you know, being able to to download your podcast and kind of hear your voice. There, there's something calming for me uh, about you. So uh, I love uh, anytime I get a chance to to chat with you. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.